your Bibles to uh, Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 25. Ezekiel 34, 25, and we're going to continue our study there of these chapters out of this book. Uh, we're going to learn a lot of things about prophecy, how to interpret prophecy as we go through this particular section because there are so many other sections that are connected into it. So if, if you don't take those systematically and feed them all together, you get an imperfect picture. And uh, sadly, that's what happens frequently with a lot of people trying to interpret prophecy is they don't take enough of the pieces to to and put them together to see what's really going on. So that's what, what I'm trying to do. Uh, Ezekiel 34 is about bad shepherds. And... Uh, the shepherds, when it shift from the, shifted from the watchmen in 33 to the shepherds, it started talking about leadership because those who care for other people are shepherds. And so this has, while it has a specific application to the priest and the kings of Israel, it also includes those who are leaders of their family, of their cities, of their towns, I mean, the, the shepherds. So what we're seeing here is that there there's a bunch of shepherds who didn't shepherd. They didn't really care. And uh, the Lord addressed that in John 10. There's some of, some of them that just do it for the prestige and the notoriety and the money and all this other stuff. And they don't really care about the sheep. And so he's saying, we're the real shepherds of Israel. That's what he's looking for. Before we begin, let's just take a moment for prayer and um, present ourselves in front of the throne of grace and ask that the Holy Spirit would be our real teacher because that's what he does. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for this privilege of being able to come together in a free country and open up your word. And Father, we know this is not the case in so many places around the world. And yet it's something we take so easily for granted. And Father, I pray we wouldn't do that anymore as we see the enemy approaching. Father, I pray that we would renew our desire to learn your word and to live it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, um, uh, putting these pieces together, I think you'll get some idea uh, as we go through by the cross-references that are here, because that's what we're doing is showing part of the systematic theology that goes into the whole realm of eschatology, the study of last things. Now, the first six verses were shepherds that don't shepherd. They just don't do their job. And what's that, what's that lead to? It led to the fact that the Jews were no longer in their land. They'd been carried off into Babylon. Ezekiel is an exilic prophet, so they weren't even in their land when this prophecy was being given. And it tells them that the Lord will demand the return of his flock. But other passages have said they're going to be totally scattered. Now, the, the northern kingdom was scattered. The southern kingdom wasn't scattered. It was carried off into captivity. So there's going to be a time future to Ezekiel when they're totally scattered. That happens in 70 A.D. And they're scattered into all the other nations of the world. And now he's talking about bringing them back. And that's the, the return. And that's what he demands. Now there's going to be a general return to the land of Israel, which has already happened. And then there's going to be a final return. Final return will be at the second advent and it will be supernatural and the angels will go out and regather everybody and bring them back there. So as, as we're looking at events and we're trying to figure out what goes where, there are a few things that we need to remember. The church is a mystery. First thing we need to remember. So there's not any specific revelations of the church that are found uh, in the Old Testament that can be identified as a church-age prophecy. There's no specific revelations because of the mystery. And what we find is that the rapture, certain things are going to happen. We'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, as He, as we saw in Acts chapter 1 last, last Sunday. Uh, he'll be coming back in a similar fashion to what he went. So we're going upwards. The second advent is a totally different event. Now we know it's separated by seven years, period known as the tribulation. 
And when he comes back then, he doesn't stop in the air. He doesn't gather the righteous and leave the wicked. He lands on the earth and he takes out the wicked and leaves the righteous. Totally separate event. So when people start conflating these things and trying to make them the same, then there are all kinds of prophetic problems they run into. Uh, Frequently not even referring to them. A lot of times they just would rather write books and make money off of it instead of going going through and say this whole thing is is a one big picture that we have a lot of parts of we've got to we've got to put together. Now it says in verses 11 to 16 the Lord is going to regather his flock. That's that's what he's going to do. And when we read through there, he's going to start putting them back together. But the final regathering, like I say, is not going to be till the second advent. Now, <clears throat> there's going to be a disrespect for his flock in verses 17 to 19. And uh, people around the world will indeed uh, show a disrespect for Israel. They will show a disrespect for Israel. And they are coming to show a disrespect for Christians, especially because... I, I can't say the majority of Christians. I don't know where the majority stands right now. But a whole lot of Christians stand with Israel in this because they remember Genesis 12, those who bless you all bless and those who curse you all curse. And we decide we're going to stand with them even though they're back in the land in unbelief. And guess what? They're not perfect. And guess what? Neither are we. Okay? But he said stand with them. And that's what that's what we should do. But this disrespect for God's flock has has been around since Ezekiel. I mean, it is it has been around, and it just continues to get worse. In uh, verse 20 to 22, it's justice for all. Lord says He's going to judge one of these days, and He's going to judge between the the goats and the sheep and the fat sheep and the skinny sheep and all that other stuff. Verse 23 and 24, David is going to be the shepherd, which is interesting that David's going to be the shepherd because this is written almost 400 years after David died. Now, the only way that could happen is if David is brought back from the dead. So here's Ezekiel that's writing about 600, somewhere between 600 and 530 B.C. David died in 970 B.C. So he's been gone quite a while, and he says yet he's going to rule from Jerusalem. Now, if they put other verses together, they would find out that at the end of the age, according to Daniel chapter 12, that's when that resurrection will occur of David and his counterparts and Daniel, the age of Israel believers, at the end of the age of Israel. So there will be a resurrection of the church, at the rapture, and there will be a resurrection of the those not of the church and prior to, uh, meaning the age of Israel and the age of the Gentiles, they'll be resurrected at the second advent, and then at the end of the millennium, there's going to be another resurrection. So what's called the first resurrection has four parts to it. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, the church. Then comes the end, second advent, Okay, and then the last enemy that will be abolished is death, and that's the millennium, the end of, end of the millennium. So it comes in, in four parts. Now, we left off at verse 25 last week, and he says, and I, again, pronouns are important to Bible students. May not be important to anybody else. But they are important, and they mean what they say, and they say what they mean. I is the Lord. That's the context. The antecedent is what establishes. I will make a covenant of peace with them. The word covenant is bereath. I I love love the word bereath. Peace is shalom. So it's the bereath shalom that really the Jews should be looking for. It's a covenant of peace with them. Them is my flock. And eliminate harmful beasts from the land. Now, there's, that means there won't be any predators in Israel. That can't be the church or the tribulation. 
because there's still predators in Israel. And there will be predators throughout the tribulational period. You remember the passage about the lion will lay down with the lamb and and uh, all those things. And the kid will play with the snake. And there's not going to be any four-legged or two-legged predators to be found anywhere in the land. So that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. They can go wherever they want. You know, <clears throat> I used to go camping as a Boy Scout. Loved to get out and camp and tromp around the woods in the dark and you know, try not to burn the forest down and all those things that, that we did. But getting out camping right now, you kind of wonder, you know, especially if you're not in a group camp with a lot of other people that you can yell and they can hear you, but that wasn't the way we did it back in the Boy Scouts. We'd just take a handful of us and go out in the middle of nowhere. I still somebody stay at, at lunch. that, uh, And I mentioned it before. One time we got disoriented. It was kind of an orienting, orienteering class. and We got disoriented down by Lawton and ended up on the artillery range. And, <laughs> and so a nice little MP came out and said, you people are going to have to pick up this stuff and get out of here. <laughs> this is the artillery range. And so you never saw kids break camp so fast in all your life. <clears throat> but anyway... He says, but see, they'll be able to do what they want to in Israel and not have to worry about any predators of any kind. He says, and I will make them in the places around my hill. Hill is the word Gibeah. It's used 69 times in the uh, Hebrew. The first usage in the law is found in Exodus 17, verse 9 and 10. And it's the hill that Moses ascended to pray for victory over the Amalekites. Probably remember that when he got tired of holding up his hands. And Joshua and Caleb held up his hands and he continued to pray. As long as his hands were up uh, to God, they were winning. As if he dropped them, they were losing. And so the first usage, he went up on a hill so he could watch the battle. He could see what was going on. This is probably a reference to one of the hills around Jerusalem near Mount Zion. Uh, we find a passage, Isaiah 10:32 and 31:4. That's probably what it's talking to. I will make them in the places around my hill, because Jerusalem was up on a hill. It's interesting that uh, the the Bible, when we everybody went up to Jerusalem, no matter which direction you were coming from. Okay. If you're coming from the south, you're going up to Oklahoma City. Okay. If you're going to Dallas, we go down to Oklahoma City. But that has nothing to do with, with Bible uh, references because it is about elevation. And everybody went up to Jerusalem, which was on a hill, his holy hill. <clears throat> he says, and I will make them in the places around my hill a blessing. Baraka is the word blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season, and they will be showers of blessing. I mentioned last week we ought to write a song about that. Um, this is going to be a pretty nice deal when he eliminates all of the, the evil beasts because the sky had been shut up for three and a half years, remember, first part of the tribulation. Yeah, it had been shut up. Moses and Elijah were out there south of Jerusalem. They turned the rain off. And so, <clears throat> anyway, this is this is millennial he's talking about. These things don't fit with the church. These things don't fit with the trib. The only place they fit is with the millennial kingdom. And it says, also the tree of the field, verse 27, will yield its fruit. Now, we've been getting a precursor of that because... Israel right now is, is feeding a whole lot of people right now. And it says the earth will yield its increase and they will be secure on their land. Now they're not now, are they? Again, we're talking millennium here. They will know that I am the Lord. Why? Because they've been surrounded by their enemies. And there's a deliverance that he gives them. And there's no more predators. They are no longer a prey for the nations. And he says, then they'll know that I am the Lord. 
when I have broken the bars of their yoke, their dispersion, their captivity, okay, and all of the persecution that comes from all around them, and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. Okay, so all these things have to happen. When that happens, the millennial kingdom is established. In verse 28, and they, which is my flock, will no longer be a prey to the nations. Now, nations is the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will no longer hate them. The Gentiles will no longer seek to destroy them. And that's the first eight verses of Psalm 83. Now, those are, those are verses you've probably been familiar with. A lot of people are talking about them right now. And Psalm 83, I don't think, is, is being fulfilled in toto right now. I think it's a precursor. Because what happens at the second advent, when you study all these things, the second advent. And this is an end time, second advent picture of, of Israel. Okay. So here, the king of the north has come through Israel, passed between the Dead Sea and the Med, according to Daniel 11. Okay. He tells us the exact route to go. King of the north has got to be Russia. They come down and defeat the king of the south, which will be led by Egypt. Okay. Uh, Egypt has always been kind of the, the figurative head anyway. Um, Oh, Gaddafi tried to claim that. He proclaimed himself king of kings and lord of lords and didn't last much longer after he did that. But uh, this this Egypt has always been recognized the most powerful nation in all of Africa, no matter what happens, followed by Libya over to the west, the Ethiopians over to the south. So here is <clears throat> they defeat the king of the south, which is got other religious ramifications because this king of the south is Muslim. Okay? So here's an atheist going to defeat a Muslim. And that says rumors from the north up here and east down here at the south end of the Dead Sea are going to come back and he's going to turn turn back and lay siege to Jerusalem. Okay? Because at this point in time, it says Israel has become an intoxicant to the nations. We're watching that happen now. We, we are watching that. It, it's not fulfillment yet. It's just the beginning of birth pangs. And it's, it's getting started. Because I, I never imagined I'd be hearing the things from college campuses. I knew they were wacky, but I had no idea uh, what... what what would be going on right now. And, you know, professors and everybody else saying, kill the Jews. That's Nazism. That, that's what it is. Democratic Socialist Party is what Nazi meant. Anyway, that's where it came from. But now it's supposedly supposed to be something real good. Anyway, King of the North is laying siege to Jerusalem. The Antichrist has signed a covenant with Israel called the Covenant of Death in Isaiah chapter 28. Okay, it's also talked about in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. So that is the covenant, and it's signed, I believe, around the middle point of the tribulation. But the European Union, the ten-nation confederacy that's conquered three nations and the Antichrist has become an eighth king, Daniel, Revelation 17, that is a... Uh, they are coming to honor their contract to protect Israel. Why would they do that? Because the Antichrist is a polytheist. You might as well say he's a Hindu. He believes in the plurality of God. That's who, that's who he is. Because when he takes his seat in the temple and proclaims himself to be a God, he doesn't say the God. The Bible is very clear there proclaims himself to be a god huh. so he's going to uh, take on this atheistic king of the north and then the kings of the east the kings of the east are all polytheistic nations they have started moving from the east to the south end of the dead sea in this place called edom okay 
and they have decided that's where they're going to have their Waterloo. It will be kind of a Waterloo, but that's where that's where they are coming. Rumors from the north, Antichrist, and the east, kings of the east, cause the king of the north to turn back and lay siege to Jerusalem because everybody wants to kill the Jews, and they're surrounded not by just uh, the armies of of Syria and Lebanon and Jordan. They are surrounded by 200 million man army with the kings of the east. They've got the whole power of the whole world lined up against them. And that's what it looks like at the second advent. Okay? That's what it looks like. So the only way out of that is for the Lord to come back. And that's what he does. So here is this... uh, He says... I'll deliver them from the hand who enslaved them. In verse 28, it says, And they, which is my flock, will no longer be a prey to the nations, and the beasts of the earth will not devour them, and they will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. This is pure millennium. Okay? Because they've, <clears throat> they've got problems now. Uh, <laughs> they're surrounded. Verse 29, And I will establish for them a renowned planting place. Now, we'll have to wait the millennium to see what that is, but it's going to be evidently a real nice plot of land found there in, in Israel. It's interesting because didn't Israel just get torn up in the tribulation? 100-pound hailstones, a comet that comes down, messes up all the water, uh, sun going nova. I mean, you just keep adding it up. It's not a nice place. And he says, I'm going to make them a place to plant their crops. Okay? That's that's a pretty, pretty big deal. And they will not again be victims of famine in the land. See, this is millennium that he's talking about. Not again be victims of famine in the land. And they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Okay? That is not the case in the church. It is not the case, definitely, in the tribulation. So he is talking here about millennial issues. In verse 31, as for you, my sheep. I like this. Jesus quoted it in John chapter 10. These sheep belong to daddy. My sheep, the sheep of my pasture. You are men and I am your God, declares the Lord God. The house of Israel is God's people and they're God's sheep. Okay? Now, don't come after my sheep. Don't come after my people. He's told people that now for 4,000 years. And uh, he's been gracious, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to a change of mind. Now, there will be a covenant of peace made with believers in the millennial kingdom. Okay, That's what we're finding out. He said in verse 25, I'll make a covenant of peace, a Bereshit shalom, shalom, with the believers for the millennial kingdom. The agriculture will produce more abundantly than ever. And it really is the garden spot of the, of the Middle East right now. But it's going to do more than, than they ever imagined. Matthew 5.10, there's going to be no persecution. Matthew 5.10 said, Blessed are you when men persecute you, for there's, for, for you shall reap your rewards. There's not going to be any persecution in the millennial kingdom. Why? Israel's no longer a prey. They're protected. Protected completely. They will be no, there will be no enemies, be they animal or human. Psalm 110. If you want to turn there quickly and read read along with me. Psalm 10 is a short psalm. Just absolutely loaded with, with theological information. 110. 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord. Uh, hmm. This is a Davidic psalm. This is the one that Jesus challenged the Pharisees with. How can David call him Jehovah and he be David's son? Okay. 
They were they argued about that. And Jesus presented the Pharisees with that very question the week of the cross. There's only one answer. He's God and he's man at the same time. Now, <clears throat> sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth his strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, the youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. See, this is the Melchizedekian priesthood. This is the Lord. This is a special priesthood. We don't have that now. We're a royal universal priesthood. Tribe of Levi was there. But this is this is the Lord's. He is the high priest. Over the church, over Israel, over creation is who he is. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Have you read about that anywhere else? We're going to read about it here again in just a second. <laughs> he will judge among the nations. He will fill them, the nations, with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside, and he will lift up his head. He has he's won the battle. This is this special priest who's a warrior that will shatter the nations, conquer the nations, and he is he's going to be the victor. Now the Lord will do something humans have tried to do for centuries but have never provided, and that's peace. He'll make a Baris Shalom with Israel, a covenant of peace. People have been trying to do that forever. The United Nations try to do that, and boy, have they messed that up. God will be in their midst. Zechariah 8, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts. When you see the word host in there, it means armies. He is the Lord of the armies. Sometimes people get a picture of Jesus at the first advent, which is only part of the picture. And they they think Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild. And he said, I am meek and gentle of heart. True statement. Not the complete picture. You keep reading. And he's also the greatest warrior who ever lived. He says, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east. Now this is Zechariah. Land of the east. Sounds like the kings of the east had moved to the south end of the Dead Sea. And he says, I'm going to save. And he says, and the land of the west. Antichrist. And I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God in truth and righteousness. We are looking for the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. It's being started as a preview in the millennial kingdom. Righteousness will dwell there. Now the presence of the kingdom is based on Jesus being in the midst of it. So many times we hear the word kingdom, we think of political boundaries, we think of all these other things about kingdoms. But our kingdom is different. Having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and he said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, there it is, or look, there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God's in your midst. Why could he say that? <laughs> he was the king of it. <laughs> you got the you got the king of the kingdom standing here talking to you. And here's old Pilate there trying to figure all this out. And Jesus says, "My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting." As it is, you got to do what you got to do. The kingdom is one of the great promises from the Lord. Jeremiah 31, when he's starting 
start putting passages together. You start looking for passages that say the lion will lay down with the lamb, various things. Jeremiah 31, if you want to turn there with me and read along. This is a millennial passage found in the middle of Jeremiah. It's not the only one, but this is a reference. Jeremiah 31, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they'll be my people. All the family... Oh, wait a minute, what's happened? Well, the northern kingdom's scattered around the world right now. Jeremiah is an exilic prophet. Okay? And Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, been carried off into captivity. So he's talking about a time future, and he says... All the families of Israel. He's talking about a united kingdom. He says, Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. That takes us back to the Exodus. Israel, when it went to find its rest. Sounds like Hebrews 4. They looked for rest and never found it. The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again you shall take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again you shall plant vineyards. On the hills of Samaria, the planters shall plant and they shall enjoy them. Now see, they're in exile now. From there shall be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim shall call out, Arise, let us go up to Zion, elevation, to the Lord our God. When does he come back to Zion? The second advent. Okay. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and shout amongst the chiefs of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Now this is instructions that a lot of them are not going to listen to. <clears throat> but when they get backed up against the Mount of Olives, I think a lot of this that they have heard in the synagogues over and over again throughout the years are going to start calling again on the name of the Lord. Behold, I'm bringing them from the north country. I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child together. A great company they shall return here. With weeping they shall come. By supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of waters. On a straight path, in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Isn't that interesting? He's talking to Israel, talking to Israel, and suddenly everybody else listen up. <laughs> okay? And declare in the coastlands afar off. And say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And they shall come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life shall be like a watery garden. And they shall never languish again. See these words, these little phrases? Never famine again. Never languish again. Never be a prey to the nations again. And the virgin shall rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. And I will turn their mourning into joy. See, this is millennial. This is what the Jews should have been celebrating. The coming millennial kingdom. When they were attacked on October 7th, they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, if you will. And that's what this is about. It is the Feast of Booths as a picture of the Millennial Kingdom. And I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. 
and I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance. Uh, the priest and the millennial kingdom are going to be good ones. That, isn't that nice? <laughs> Refreshing. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Not satisfied with all kinds of food and everything else. He already talked about that. But you know, you can have the greatest food ever made. If you don't have the Lord, you're still empty. Still empty. Now, <clears throat> the kingdom is one of the great promises from the Lord. The millennial kingdom. And we're still looking forward uh, to that. Now, Ezekiel 35 <clears throat> is the judgment on Edom. So now we're going to shift off. See, Edom is at the south end of the Dead Sea. Pretty good chunk of property down here at the bottom. It's been inhabited by a lot of different people, but they are descendants of Esau. Okay, Jacob and Esau, as you know, twins that came out. Esau was the firstborn. And uh, Jacob, rookie duty, cheated him out of it. But it was God's will, and God used it anyway, and Isaac saw it. Because he knew, he, he realized he was going to make a mistake uh, crowning Esau as the head. Because uh, Edom was about like Ishmael, both called wild asses of a man. So they were um, about half nuts. Anyway, here is Edom. Now, what's going to happen? We've already talked about it. Kings of the East, they are coming to, to Edom. So, <clears throat> here's the part of the judgment. Interesting about the judgment on Edom, this is a judgment a picture of judgment on unbelievers. Esau wasn't a believer. So his descendants were not believers either. In fact, he took off and married a woman from uh, the tribe of Ishmael when he got mad at daddy. He left and that's what he did. So you can guess what kind of a combination that produced. Now, <clears throat> moreover... <clears throat> The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, once again saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Mount Seir is representative of Edom, the mountain located in that particular territory. And it has always been a tireless adversary of Israel. The only thing they listen to is power. If you're stronger than them, they leave you alone. Until they find, until they find a good chance to, to attack. Now, see, this goes. This is not really a racial differential, is it? Whenever you get twins, hmm, this is an issue of faith. Because they believed the the blessings. Of Abraham belonged to them. Okay. And it's clear that Jacob. Jacob means deceiver by the way. That's what his name means. So it's kind of a picture of the way he operated. Well his name was changed with to Israel. Oh that was a good one too. That means one who contends with God. Now <laughs> is Israel ever contended with God? I mean they've, they've lived up to their name. He says, and say to it, set your face against Mount Seir, say to the mountain, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. You're going, why is he talking to a mountain? You ever thought about, well, I know it's figurative language, and we you know, make it kind of flowery, but why he's talking to a mountain because nobody else is listening. Okay? <laughs> the Jews aren't listening. The Edomites aren't listening. He's talking to a mountain. So he's getting the word out there, and it's kind of a prelude of what the overall plan is. He says, I'm against you. I'll stretch out my hand against you make you a desolation. I will lay waste to your cities. You will become a desolation. Then you, Edomites, will know that I am the Lord. See what these things are all about? You're going to pick this up in the book of Revelation. 
Why is he doing this? So you will know that I am the Lord. I'm going to tell you in advance what's going to happen. And then I'm going to do it. And then you will know. Now you might not accept it. You might not embrace it. You might still reject it. Which is what most of the world will do. But he said, I'm going to tell you. And you will know it. Every knee should bow. According to Philippians 2. But every knee will bow. According to Romans 14.11. Sad things. For some it will be too late. Now. <clears throat> because you have had. Everlasting enmity. And have delivered the sons of Israel. To the power of the sword. At the time of their calamity. At the time of the punishment. Of the end. See what. See here context here? The punishment of the end. Okay, end of what? It's got to be the end of the age of Israel in, in context. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, I will give you over to bloodshed. And bloodshed will pursue you. Since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. We're getting a little taste of that right now, aren't they? Only from a group that ancient Philistines up there in the Gaza Strip and they've attacked without without provocation even though they're trying to manufacture a provocation now the news media is and, and they have done that so what's happening first blood you strike first blood we're going to strike back he says and I'll make Mount Seir a waste and desolation and I will cut off from it the one who passes through and returns it was, see, going out around the Dead Sea, they had to go through there if they were going east or west. Okay, so he said the one who goes through returns. I'll fill its mountains with its slain. Now this is pretty strong wording, isn't it? On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines. Ooh, you know what that's called? It comes... Right out of the Dead Sea, it's called the Great Rift Valley. That's what it's called. Because there's a major fault line. Runs out of the south end of the Dead Sea. There's going to be an earthquake then near the end of the tribulation that causes every island to disappear. And it's going to split Jerusalem into three parts and open up this Great Rift Valley valley that's where the blood will run to the horses bridles he says and I will fill its mountains with its slain on your hills your valleys and in all your ravines those slain by the sword will fall this is the location and the final battle of Armageddon final battle of Armageddon Megiddo is up here but it's called the battle, and actually it's a war of Armageddon. And it goes on with a series of battles with one culminating battle. This guy at the Antichrist, Megiddo, he's got his arm, all of his armies already gathered there, and the Lord just goes, enough, or stop, or shut up. I mean, <laughs> it's one little word shall fell him. That's who it's talking about. But then he enters into the Great Rift Valley, to fight this 200 million man army. And that's where the blood runs to the horses' bridles. Now, <clears throat> this is the location of the final battle. We see it also from Isaiah 63, and we see it from Revelation 14, verses 17 to 20. Now, this is the judgment on Edom, derived from Esau, that's where it comes from, the unbelieving brother of Jacob. The area is located south of the Dead Sea in modern-day Jordan. That's what's being talked about. This is the same area described in the final battle of Armageddon. Isaiah 63, the first six verses. Who's this who comes from Edom? With garments of glowing colors from Bozrah. This one who is majestic in his apparel... Marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? Isaiah asked the question. 
and your garments like the one who treads the winepress. This is the great winepress of God. I have trodden the wine trough alone. This is the this is the one who comes with glowing garments. It kind of sounds like the robes that he comes back riding the horse on with a big sword in his mouth and all that. Lands on the Mount of Olives, splits the mountain in half, takes out the Antichrist, takes out the King of the North with fire from heaven. That's Ezekiel 38 and 39. Okay, that's when they're eliminated. And then he goes after the kings of the east. He said, I've trodden the wine trough alone. <clears throat> I don't know how many people, and this goes all the way back to the Essenes, 400 years before Christ. They were training so they could fight with Christ and help him establish his kingdom. And what did this verse say? I have trodden the wine trough alone. When he enters into the battle, he doesn't need any of our help. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, <clears throat> trampled them in my wrath, and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart. You remember that little phrase? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. Promise I will repay. One of these days he will. He says, and the year of redemption has come. This is the final redemption. They've already been redeemed by the blood of the lamb on the cross. Okay, that was accomplished, removing the, the penalty for sin. But this is another redemption, another phase of it. And <clears throat> I looked and there was no one to help. There was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me. And my wrath upheld me. And I trod down the peoples in my anger. And made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's what John is writing about in Revelation 14. See, that's where we're going next. Because these passages are all intertwined. Revelation 14, 17 Another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. Now it's interesting because verse 14 to 16 is the first angel that comes out. And he swung his sickle into the er, over the earth and the earth was reaped. That's the rapture. That's the harvest. The fields are white for harvest. That's the picture of the rapture. Verses 17 to 20 is the second advent. The second reaping. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. What were we just reading in Isaiah 63? Were we just reading in Ezekiel 35? When he goes in, he's going to kill people. <clears throat> and another angel, the one who has the power over the fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle. And gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. Because her grapes are ripe. <laughs> Time for the season, isn't it? Time for the millennial kingdom. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth. See, the first one swung his, swung his sickle over the earth. And the earth was reaped. That's the rapture. Then when he swings it into the earth, the earth is reaped. But that's when he takes out the wicked in order to leave the righteous. <clears throat> and he threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Didn't we just read that in Isaiah 63? And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the wine press up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now that's a lot of blood, but 200 million people. And why was the earthquake? What happened with the Great Rift Valley? And it made this great trough coming out of the Dead Sea. Made a place to capture it. That's what it did. <clears throat> now, verse 10 to 15 is the reasons for the judgment on Edom. He says, because you, and this is Mount Seir he's talking to here, have said, 
And then we're going to look at some of the stuff, the, the, the three main things that they said in this paragraph. You have said these two nations and these two lands will be mine. What two nations? Northern and Southern Kingdom. Because that's how they were viewed. And this is Mount Seir, the Edomites. And they have said, these will be mine and we will possess them. See, they wanted Israel's land. Although the Lord was there. In other words, they didn't care if the Lord was there or not. They wanted the land. We want what you have. Now, this type of thing is purely demonic. Because what would Satan love nothing better to do? Kill all the Jews. Now the Lord said he can raise them up out of the rocks if he needs to. But what does he want to do? He wants to kill all the Jews. Because if he kills all the Jews, the promise to Abraham can't be fulfilled to have the land from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt. He would love nothing better than to say, God, you missed this one. You're not really omniscient. And on and on and on. So this is demonic activity behind all this. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy, which you showed because of your hatred against my people. See, the first thing is they want all the land. The second thing is the hatred that is there. <clears throat> so I will make myself known amongst among them, my people, when I judge you, Mount Seir. Okay? He's given Israel every possible chance. And he does have believers at that point in time. He's still got the 144,000. Okay? Male virgin Jews. They are part of the ones that are holding off the king of the north. Only they don't pull a suicide pact like Masada did. They hold off. And he says, Then you'll know I am the Lord. I, the Lord, have heard all your revilings. Revilings include anger and envy that are expressed verbally. That's what they're talking about. It's a verbal expression of their anger and their envy. And you can hear that. It's not hard to hear that already. He says, What you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, here you are, Mount Seir, you're talking against my mountains. They, the mountains of Israel, are laid desolate. They are given to us for food. And the third thing, you've spoken arrogantly against me. Okay, why is he taking out the Edomites? Here are the reasons that you see. They wanted all the land of Israel that was not given to them, but given to Abraham. First thing, they have reviled Israel. And in so doing, revile God. The third thing, you've spoken arrogantly against me and have multiplied your words against me, and I have heard. Thus says the Lord God, as all the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. That's about as strong a language as you can find anywhere in Scripture. He is not happy with the Edomites. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You were happy because they were out and scattered amongst the nations. You were rejoicing over that and says, guess what I'm going to do to you? The same thing. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. And then they will know that I am the Lord. So the first problem mentioned of the Edomites future to Ezekiel is that they want what is not theirs to have. They want the land of Israel. Esau was the firstborn twin who had the rights of primogenitor and he should have inherited the blessings from Isaac. Okay? That's normally the way it was done. But there was always a clause in that. The rights of the firstborn, they got the priesthood of the family. They got a double portion. So if there were six kids, they divided everything by seven, and the firstborn got two-sevenths of the property. That's the way that they, they figured the rights of the per- firstborn. And they got the rulership 
of the family. So they got the rulership, they got the priesthood, and they got the double portion. That's what they that's what a firstborn is supposed to get. But if he was an unbeliever, how could he be a priest? So the unbeliever it is pulled due to unbelief because they couldn't fulfill the priesthood. See, Job was a family priest. That was the that was the uh, priesthood that was talked about. So that back when Jacob and Esau were having this battle, the family priesthood was the way it was way it was done. Now the Edomites already had land of their own. Interesting note, which God gave to them. Jehovah Elohim gave them a piece of land. Joshua 24. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, call for the elders of Israel for their heads, their judges, their officers. They presented themselves before the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and I led him through all the land of Canaan, and I multiplied his descendants, and I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. They spent some time there. But see, guess it wasn't like the Lord had forgotten them. He was still a son of Abraham. And so he gave he gave them Mount Seir. Esau got mad at his father Isaac, intentionally took a wife from the tribe of Ishmael. The book of Obadiah is devoted to this destruction. Now you might be able to read Obadiah uh, with a little more clarity after this class. Uh, I'm running out of time. I'm, I was, I'm not going to read it. It's real hard to read. It's a page long. You have to really look for it. Uh, it's it's okay if you got to look in the index to find it. That's that's fine. It's not real long. I mentioned before that in Hebrew class sometimes we had they say, well, what do you want to translate? And of course, being lazy seminary students, somebody always picked Obadiah. It's the most difficult Hebrew in the Old Testament. So it's kind of like God said, okay, I'm going to fix you up. You're going to try and ease through this. Commit yourself to Obadiah, and then we'll see how you do it. But it's all about the destruction of the Edomites, the book of Obadiah. <clears throat> they are in clear-cut violation of the commands to love your neighbor and love your brother. See, <laughs> that's, that's what they're called to do. The Jews have shown some grace to them throughout the course of, of their history. And it's kind of interesting when it comes to who is, uh, you know, the Jews were told to wipe out all the Canaanites, but who ended up showing compassion when they weren't supposed to? The Jews lean more toward compassion than their surrounding neighbors. <clears throat> Three things have gotten them on God's list for discipline. Unrighteous anger, envy of Israel, and the hatred of them. Okay, that's got them on the wrong list. To speak arrogantly is to believe there's one God who's not Elohim. And this modern day group has embraced Allah. Their hatred was expressed when they rejoiced over a previous scattering of Israel. Little old country, island country called Tyre. Ezekiel 26 and 27 and up to about the first 10 verses of 28. And this little old island nation basically was controlling the seafaring at one time. And Israel got carried off and all that and what what did they do? They thought in their hearts. That's what it says. See, you don't have to pick up a sword against Israel to get on the bad side of God. They thought, boy, this is a good deal because we're going to get all their trade. 
And God said, no, you're not. He laid siege to them. Some of the worst stuff and one of the best documented things in ancient history. Cyrus and his group went in and built a siege wall, a siege ramp out to that island and went and killed them all. said, <clears throat> you're going to be a place where fishermen dry their nets. And that was all that was left of that anti-Semitic group. And how many people didn't learn from that in the history of the world? Anyway. Father, thank you for this day. Father, thank you for the times in which we live. Thank you for your word that makes some sense out of it. And Father, although it's not pleasant and we hate to see it happen, uh, it's still wonderful to have a little bit of clarity to it. So Father, I pray that we would stay calm in the middle of all the turmoil I pray that as we have opportunity that you would give us wisdom to know how to answer those we might run into. And Father, I pray that you give us grace as well and work the gospel in at every opportunity. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.